Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we have been having in-depth conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. Season 5 had some great adaptations, like our Meryl Streep Oscar-nominated performances series. We covered adaptations like Kramer vs. Kramer, Sophie's Choice, and The French Lieutenant's Woman. It's a real Sophie's Choice between those books. <laughs> you see what, I, <laughs> see what I did there? Uh, yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's quite at the level of a real Sophie's Choice. We also did Snowpiercer for our Bong Joon-ho series, adapted from the French graphic novel Le Transpersonnage. Man, I love that movie. We had our two-part 1939 series that included adaptations like Gone with the Wind, Ninochka, The Women, and The Hound of the Baskervilles. A number of those 1939 movies, like Goodbye, Mr. Chips, also tied into our recent 1940 Academy Award Best Picture nominee series. Our naughty children horror series had creepy adaptations like The Bad Seed, Village of the Damned, The Innocents, and Children of the Corn. For our Hayao Miyazaki series, we talked about his take on Lupin III with the Castle of Cagliostro, plus his own The Wind Rises. Some great listener choice picks, too. Viridiana and The Great Escape. And for our David Mamet Wright's series, The Verdict, The Untouchables, and Glengarry Glen Ross. Plus, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang from our Shane Black series adapted from Brett Halliday's novel, Bodies Are Where You Find Them. Dive into the sources for all of these at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support the show. Check out thenextreel.com slash originals today and find your next read. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. I guess we should start with a uh, hearty congratulations. Yes, I, I don't know if it's like a happy birthday sort of thing, but... Yeah, it's more of a collection. We've achieved some sort of milestone. We've collected uh, 200 movies on this show. It's like we finished a puzzle. Yeah, kind of a small one. You just (laughs) made it seem much like a much smaller accomplishment. (laughs) So, (laughs) thanks. I've been feeling great all day. It's like we just finished brushing our teeth after a good (laughs) full two minutes. (laughs) It's right. It's you just you've eaten ribs and you've got something in the teeth and you just floss between those teeth and it's that feeling of <laughs> of dislodging some meat. Ah, oh, finally it's yeah, out. Finally. That's what that is the experience I hope our listeners have. Finally. <laughs> uh we have we have we've hit 200 films that we have talked about. Does that mean anything to you? That's just, it's a, an exciting number. It's like, wow, have we really talked about that many movies? <laughs> <laughs> it's all about tone of voice, Andy. Watch your tone of voice. It's like, woo! God, have we really? <laughs> Is that really what we've been doing at the time? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'd like to calculate uh, what we could have been doing had we been, <laughs> had we been doing something else with our time. Uh, and I think that it is important as we do this to talk about the amount of time that we have spent doing this, uh, in, in terms of the number of shows that we've done, that kind of thing. And so we've, you know, sometimes do this update. Um, can, do you want to guess how many hours, minutes, and seconds, uh, we have been exploring films on this show today? And, and it's just these episodes. It's not, I can't tell you that. Oh, so so it does include film it actually boards includes and interviews and everything. The forty-two other episodes that we've done on the film board—that's that's what I can. That's all I can tell you. Okay, so I'm going to say uh, two hundred and sixty hours, seventeen minutes and thirty-one seconds. You know, I expected you to be farther off than you are. Oh wow! Really? Yeah, I really. You're actually you're reasonably close. If this were, um. 30 episodes ago or so 291 hours 38 minutes and 58 seconds that is a lot of hours (laughs) (laughs) so anyway uh we you had posted uh and i think this is fascinating that you had posted a where our top 20 uh films were uh where our our list sat at 100 versus 200 and i think it's uh, i think we should uh, uh just list through those really quickly even if we just do the top 10 well i'll just do you read, read the oh, 20 oh yeah i'll just read through them real quick so the top 20 now uh as of uh, our 200th movie are number 1 network 
Then going down, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, Raising Arizona, 7, Jaws, Mad Max Fury Road, Touch of Evil, Requiem for a Dream, Inception, Alien, Raiders of the Lost Ark, All the President's Men, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Brazil, Stand By Me, Delicatessen, Time Bandits, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Million Dollar Baby, and Up in the Air. That's a good list. Feels like a good list to me. Yeah, I think it feels like a great list. Interesting moves uh, over the course of the last hundred films, though. Yes, it is. Because uh, if you look at where Up in the Air, number 20, currently is, it's, uh, where was it? It was number eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, a hundred films ago. So in the last hundred films, 12 new films have uh, unseated Up in the Air. Have squeezed in there. The 20, uh, 100 movies ago, it was Network, 7, Jaws, Alien, Raiders of the Lost Ark was number 5. Now it's number 11. All the President's Men, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Up in the Air, Aliens, The French Connection, Fight Club, The World's End, No Country for Old Men, Moneyball, The Descent, The Thing, The Sting, Zero Dark Thirty, Zodiac, and The Social Network. And now... The social network is actually number forty-three on our list, Ooh. so that's how far it has dropped out of uh, out of the top twenty. That stings to me a little bit. It does, but we have talked about an awful lot of good movies. So, well, this is uh, it's been a treat, and here's to two hundred more movies. I I don't think there is any. I mean, if you miss this experience, you go to Flick Chart. You can look at our top twenty because, believe me, if I have anything to say about it, tonight's movie will not affect our top twenty. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I don't I don't think it'll even unseat the social network at number 43. Uh, dear God, please. Please do not unseat the social network. Uh, all right, this has been uh this is a fun little trip down memory lane. And speaking of memory lane, we got a uh, we got an email. Yes, we did. From one of our favorite listeners. Absolutely. Uh, Matt Madrano. He writes, uh, and this is for you. Uh, I think this is for you. I want you to respond to this. Hi, guys. I was just re-listening to your podcast on the movie Seven, one of my favorites from you guys. And he said that he has one little problem with the movie, that it's the attitude between the dicks and the SWAT team members. If it helps, he kind of got the lines wrong in that scene that he was talking about. He said that the SWAT guy goes barging past the dicks and says, SWAT before dicks, or something like that. I believe Somerset says, they live for this more or less saying they're macho type guys that love this part of breaking in or the action that makes or the action that makes more sense to me and he also says that when the SWAT guy leans over he whispers you get what you deserve back at the dicks however that is not the case he in fact whispers to sloth you got what you deserved, you son of a bitch, which then triggers Sloth to just flip out. I don't think there's a real animosity between the dicks and SWAT. I think Andy may have just misunderstood what was being said. I'm not big into correcting people, but my hope is that this tidbit of knowledge helps remove any doubt as to how perfect this movie actually is to Andy. Thanks and keep up the great work, guys. Uh, now, Matt Madrano, Matthew Madrano. And we know he's a he's a writer of screen. He just he just dropped the uh, dropped the connection the correction bomb on you, Andrew. <laughs> what what say you? I think it's a, I think it's a very interesting point. I I do feel like I heard and I don't know if it was like commentary or something like that of Fincher talking about this relationship between them. 
something like that. I really can't remember talking about this this animosity that existed between them. And, and I shouldn't. Maybe animosity is the wrong word, but it is kind of this thing where they they these two different departments, the SWAT team members and the detectives, they they treat the situations differently. And I think that's kind of that whole you know, SWAT before dicks sort of thing that comes at the beginning of the scene. Um, and so, yes, I mean, I, I don't think it's maybe, uh, you know, like there's fighting words or anything like that, but I, I, I agree that he's right. It's just, you know, this is, and Somerset acknowledges, they live for this. This is what these guys like to do. Um, as far as the other one, I swear, and I, I'd have to honestly go back and I can't remember if it was in the script or listening to Fincher or somebody, but I swear that the SWAT guy says you get what you deserve to the detectives and um, I just can't remember. So that's one of those that I'd actually have to go back and and do some more examination into it. Um, But it does pique my curiosity and it does make me want to revisit it and it is one of the great films. So um, don't go uh, thinking that uh, this film is, is lowered that much on my list there, Matthew because this is one of my uh, all-time favorites, too. So. And, and, and mine, and clearly ours at number four right now on our list. So, Yes. Uh, this is a great film. Matthew, thank you so much. And thanks for listening to that episode in particular. That was, <laughs> that was episode 17, uh, if, you, if you're keeping track. It's been a long time since we talked about that movie, and I deeply appreciate that he went back to listen to that. So thank you, Matthew, for doing that, and thanks for writing in. And, um, uh, you know... Giving Andy something to think about. Absolutely. Who else do we have? Let's start with uh, with Blot. Okay. Because, uh, because he's the more negative of the two. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is an interesting uh, review from, from uh, uh, Ben Lott. Uh, and he writes, I was pleased that this movie surprised me. It seemed the standard Hollywood script set me up to think Hoffman was going to be the bad guy, yet I found myself totally sympathizing with him. It was a beautiful picture of a father's love for his son. Unfortunately, it didn't break me like it did you because I don't have a child. In- instead, I sat in frustration with Streep's character and the completely unfair trial. Good movie, and I'm glad I'm I, I'm glad it might have made a change in custody cases, but it's not a movie I need to see again. Your ranking 26 out of 99, my ranking 130 out of 99. 199. Right, 199 on both of those. I find that a, a really interesting uh, comment, and it it speaks to exactly how I feel about the movie we're talking about tonight. You know, there are these movies that you are able to recognize as uh, as beautiful, great pictures, but for some reason or another, they're not. You're not wired for them, and um, I think this this may be one uh, for our dear friend Ben Lot. Yes, absolutely. What absolutely. did our What did our friend Mr. Tilkvist have to say? Mr. Tilkvist um, was kind of the opposite. He really enjoyed the film when he watched it, and then he said, "Thanks, Next Reel, for your lovely Kramer versus Kramer episode. Just so you know, I was also in that conversation. Only you couldn't hear me." <laughs> But or, I think, or we must, so we, he thinks. Yeah, yeah, we heard you. Trust me. No. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> but he did go on to say, "Any chance of a Mel Brooks series?" Because oh, just like yeah. you, I love most of his movies. Young Frankenstein is ten out of ten. Completely agree with you on that one. And yeah, I think that would be a great series. It's not in our current schedule, but I am putting Mel Brooks on our list of things that we potentially will talk about one day. And it'll be something that uh, I think Pete and I would love to throw onto the list one of these days. We would. And we're getting close. Now that uh, the fall is here, we're getting close to having to review our 2018 schedule. 
Uh, That's right. We're getting there. <laughs> Better hurry up on that. <laughs> uh, yes. No, that is uh, that is a great idea. And I feel like I've been um, on a little bit of a Mel Brooks uh, bender of late, introducing my kids to some of Mel Brooks' gentler pieces. <laughs> which ones are those? Well, you know, we just did Spaceballs, which was actually really fun. It's a, yes. really much more fun to watch with kids now. So We did get some feedback on uh, the good uh, Facebook Talking uh, yes. blast from the past. Yes, Philip Hurd uh, said, just recently listened to the episode where Pete got a new fridge. I had no, di- no idea he was an expert in refrigerator choreography. <laughs> <laughs> well, Philip, you're welcome. Now you know that if you have any trouble with your refrigerator dances in the future, you know now who to call. That's right. That I live. Right. I live to serve, sir. Always a gentleman. A gentleman knows these things. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. And and I think really people tune into this show to hear about my appliance woes. I think so. Just wait till he gets to the one about my cutlery. <laughs> uh sad, sad, sad. We've just full of sadness. Oh. We've lost some people. That man, right in a row like dominoes this week. It was sad. It was sad. Oliver Sacks and uh, Wes Craven. And then uh, just yesterday, Dean Jones. Oh, poor, I did not poor know sweet he was, love bug. I didn't know he was in Clear and Present Danger. It's crazy. Did you figure out what he plays? Judge Moore. Mm. I don't remember who that is. I'll never forget him as Judge Moore. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was Disney films, though, I tell yeah. you. He was the ultimate likable guy, likable schlub. Mm-hmm. That was his, his gig. Sad, sad uh, loss. I am surprised you're not even more broken up about Wes Craven. However, he's I am. Of, he's kind of uh, seminal in your uh, chosen gestalt. I just rewatched The Nightmare on Elm Street. The in, original? Uh, in, yeah, in respect for uh, Wes Craven. I, I threw that in and and uh, reveled in the glory and the... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I will say some of the script in that uh, is pretty awful. It's pretty awful. But, but that's okay because it was bolstered by strong performances from Heather Langenkamp. Uh, <laughs> and Johnny Depp and, Johnny and Robert Depp. England. Yes. yes. It actually is a lot of fun. And I mean, the Nightmare on Elm Street series is, uh, it was kind of my my go-to horror series when I was a kid. And just love those films as bad as they are. I still have a blast watching them. And that one in particular is just uh, great fun to watch and revel in all of its uh, campy 80s horror glory. You know, it's just, he's a guy who just nailed the formula. I mean, every one of them. I, and I watched, I, I'm with you, I, the, the Nightmare films, uh, you know, probably up into Dream Warrior. That was the last one I actually remember going to see in the theater. That one actually pushed me over the edge. But the rest of them, I was just in them. Like everyone uh, that, that hit, they just nailed that sort of teen horror thing. And Wes Craven, he just, man, talk about a guy for the time. Yeah, and then the Scream series. I mean, that was oh, a great yes. kind of resurgence for him. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I, I really enjoyed Red Eye. I mean, that was a great film. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, he's he's had a lot of uh, things. And Serpent in the Rainbow. I mean, oh, I still have no. nightmares about one yeah. particular scene in that That's... one that I'm pretty sure every man who's ever seen that film has nightmares about that. Well, now you're scene. talking about the scrotum scene, aren't you? Yes, I am. Scrotum, scrotum, yes. and the and the railroad spike. Yep. Hmm. I wonder how many people are crossing their legs right now. <laughs> I'll bet roughly 80% of our listeners right now. Oh, my word. 
Ouch. That's a horrible, horrible scene. Great yes, film. Love that film. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting film that I'd love to revisit. Yeah. Uh, I think, is, the, is that all of our follow-up? Are we ready? I think so. Let's tell the people where we're from. Where are we from? This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Howdy, everybody. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the third film in our Meryl Streep series with Carl Rice's 1981 film, The French Lieutenant's Woman. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com, subscribe on iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you are a French lieutenant currently looking for a woman, or a Canadian colonel looking for a brother, or even an old Norse Viking looking for a dog, you should first head over to Instagram.com slash The Next Reel and play The Next Reel's Instagram, hashtag PonyPrize, hashtag GuessTheMovieChallenge. Andy, our, uh, our, our friend in Scotland, Stephen Smart, is still vacationing globe trotting and so you you are you have stepped in yet again to do the report from abroad how did our assorted soldiery fare this week yeah this is the first of three weeks where i will be helming the uh the uh, guest movie challenge and this was a fun week it was austin powers the spy who shagged me and uh, it was uh, really difficult picking images for this one because there are some juicy ones that i was hoping to use but uh, I ended up trying to really uh, throw people in all sorts of diff- different directions. And I think I got people uh, in, you know, I think it worked for the most part. Image four, the uh, cookies on the plate, uh, is the one that ended up giving it away. The other, Scotty, actually came close and said, the, uh, said Austin Powers, giving the clue to AQS Morning View that it was actually Austin Powers, the spy who shagged me. It was the sequel. So congratulations, AQS Morning View. You are entered to win the 2015 Pony Prize. <laughs> That's awesome. I love... You picked some good ones. It was fun. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> I was really tempted. You know the bits uh, in the movie when uh, um, uh, Dr. Evil's... <laughs> phallic spaceship is yes. flying around and people are looking at it and it, it's just it's just you know, joke after joke <laughs> brilliant brilliant stuff and every one of those could have been an image from this unfortunately pretty much every single one of those is uh, very searchable so yeah yeah no you pick some good ones uh i i think it's time for us to do uh trailers <laughs> So my trailer is a very creepy looking uh, crime drama called Uncle John. And I'm not picking this because I have an Uncle John. And God forbid this would be a story of my Uncle John. (laughs) But (laughs) this is a really interesting looking film about... uh, it's, It's a silent trailer. Well, it's just music, eerie sounds. And it's a really creepy trailer. And it's um, a story of this small town, and you've got this um, uncle who, I guess he's respected in town, and he is struggling to evade suspicion of a murder. And that's one of the stories. And then there's a second kind of parallel story that is a kind of this urbanite returning to a quiet hometown, and I think he kind of connects with the girl and starts kind of... Um, creating a relationship. And it's these two stories as they kind of come together. Looks really interesting. The thing that um, 
piques my curiosity the most is John Ashton actually uh, playing Uncle John. John Ashton, we've talked about on the show um, way back in our Midnight Run episode, and he's uh, also pretty well known as uh, one of the detectives in Beverly Hills Cop. Uh, Judge Reinhold's partner that works with Eddie Murphy. And he's just fantastic in uh, in those sorts of roles. And this, as Uncle John, there's something about him that seems very unsettling. And But uh, I, I don't know. I want to say comforting, but the trailer doesn't give me any comfort. <laughs> but but I, I really like the look of this, and I'm really looking forward to see it. Ronnie Blevins is in it. Um, I worked with him on... Uh, on uh, uh, Ambush at Dark Canyon a few years ago, and then Alex Moffat, Jenna Ling, and it's directed by Stephen Piet. It's, uh, I don't know, it looks uh, it looks really good, and I'm excited to see this one. What about you? You know, I'm very excited to see it. I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> because, like you said, the trailer is one of the great trailers. It doesn't really give you anything. It's just all mood. Uh, John Ashton, uh, I'm very excited to see that, not the least of which is because he lives now in your hometown. And that I think that exciting. is really great coincidence very exciting and when you say my hometown not where i'm currently living right no really your hometown exactly the of your home the town of your home (laughs) of your youth your youthful hometown your the town where you lived as a boy as a lad (laughs) skipping rocks catching crawdads how did you know with bacon (laughs) uh i'm looking forward to seeing it out did you say when it comes out um, I, wasn't, I wasn't paying attention to that part. No, I didn't. September 18th is going to be, uh, I think it's having a limited release, and it's being released uh, digitally same day. So mm-hmm. uh, looking forward to this one, and I'm hoping to catch it uh, right then and there. Man, that guy has aged. He has, but uh, it looks really good for this trailer. Yep, yep, absolutely agree. My trailer is, um, you know, I, I, the way I look at it, it sort of fits the same vein as, as, uh, as her. Right. It's this weird sort of near science fiction, uh, near future science fiction where just, you know, something's gone different. And uh, except for this time, it stars uh, Colin Farrell and Rachel Weiss, uh, director and writer Yorgos Thanimos, Lanthimos, Yorgos Lanthimos brings us The Lobster. It is a a comedy romantic sci-fi, a dystopian near future single people according to the laws of the city, are taken to the hotel where they are obliged to find a romantic partner in 45 days or are transformed into beasts and sent off to live in the woods. (laughs) (laughs) I just love that. I I know. I know. (laughs) That is the sort of log line that you read. It's like, Okay, that's something that I really am curious about. That's right. That is, I can't imagine any conversation with a studio executive or, or an investor who read that and the response was not, this is a movie I'm making. Right. I, of course, this is a movie that needs to be made. It's fantastic. The idea is fantastic. Colin Farrell, the, the opening track of, of Colin Farrell through this trailer is him walking with a dog. And so we are introduced to him going to this hotel. It's beautiful. Everybody is talking to each other, men and women talking to one another. And he's kind of going through this pre-interview. Uh, you know, who are you interested in? Women? Are you, do you, you know, do you have any diseases? Whatever. And then who who is this? Gesturing to the dog. This is my brother. He was here last year and didn't make it. Right. And that's how we're introduced to this concept. And I, I, I bit hook, line, sinker, 
the works. I thought it was fantastic. Leah Seydoux, uh, Rachel Weiss, Colin Farrell, Ben Wishaw, John C. Riley uh, is in it, playing a rather subdued, lisping man. Uh, Ariane Labad, Olivia Coleman, Ashley Jensen. Uh, let's see. I think that uh, that hits everybody. I. I love I love the way people are credited. You've got loner leader, short sighted woman, the limping man, lisping man, biscuit woman, nosebleed woman, loner swimmer, heartless woman. <laughs> no, and David. <laughs> right, and David. <laughs> I love it. I'm very excited about it. Uh, you, it sounds like, are equally enthusiastic. Absolutely, it's uh, just something that feels completely different, and I really want to see it. It did uh, premiere at Cannes. It is in the festival circuit right now. Uh, it hits the New York Film Festival um, September 27th, 2015. Uh, opens in Ireland in October. Have no idea when it's going to hit the U.S. in, in wide release. Um, but uh, it's coming sometime after uh, October. It looks like Ireland, Netherlands, France, and Turkey are all on the October schedule. But after that, I don't know. We wait. Probably pretty soon. That, who knows? Maybe direct to digital. Here's hoping. Yeah, Pro- Protagonist Pictures is doing the U.S. distribution. It's not a company I've heard of, so I have a feeling yeah. it probably is going to end up being um, a digital release. This is one to keep track of. Uh, September this month, uh, it's open. It opens at the Calgary Film Festival and the Vancouver International Film Festival, uh, and the Toronto Film Festival, one right after the other. Uh, so for our Canadian friends, uh, definitely catch it this month, and uh, let us know what you think. Indeed. All right. Andy? Pete? I should like to hear you read from the Bible. If your expression is agreeable to me, you shall have the position. It has been recognized as a masterpiece of modern literature. It has given the world a woman and a love story so mysterious and unique only an actress of the most special talents could portray them on the screen. Meryl Streep in The French Lieutenant's Woman. I knew it was ordained that I should never marry an equal, so I married Shane. I am the French Lieutenant's. One woman in two love stories. I must see you. That would be very difficult. One before the cameras. I gave myself to him. One behind the scenes. You know what I say in the graveyard scene about going to London? If I went to London, I know what I should become. I should become what some already call me. One in a world where freedom is forbidden. You are a cunning, wicked creature. May I know of what I am accused? One in a world without rules. I want you so much. You just had me. My only happiness is when I sleep. When I wake, the nightmare begins. Her torture had become her delight. I do not fear. Do you wish to hear her? Do you wish to see her? I cannot. I cannot. Do you wish to touch her? Meryl Streep, Jeremy Irons, in a Carol Rice film. Written for the screen by Harold Pinter. Based on the novel by John Fowles. The French Lieutenant's Woman. The French Lieutenant's Woman. Andy? Yeah, what, what's up with Lieutenant, Lieutenant? Like, why do we say Lieutenant? And everybody in England... The world? Everywhere, everyone else in the world says Lieutenant. Like, I, that is such a strange thing. It was thing. Uh, Alien uh, Cubed. 
Yes. Right? It was uh, Brian Glover in Alien Cubed. I Lieutenant, believe you're right. Lieutenant Ripley. Yes. How did... what? When did we get... This is like the metric system versus Imperial. Somewhere we parted ways on the word Lieutenant. Yeah. And... I don't know. Lieutenant makes more sense because there's no F. There's no F. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what, what really sets it apart. Uh, so I'd love to hear from somebody in the world who listens to the show who says Lieutenant. Yes. Why Why do you put an F in there? Why do you do that? I would like to know that too. Yes. It, yeah. Um, I. <laughs> it's almost like they saw the E and just thought it was, it's, it's the next letter. Do it's like one of those those old the way that they wrote the letters like 300 years ago where yeah. it looks almost like a like an f maybe yeah right in in uh, it's sort of calligraphic right uh, script yeah <clears throat> part of the reason that we're we're talking about the way you pronounce lieutenant's woman in uh, carl rice's uh, film based on the book by john fowles uh, a screenplay an adaptation by harold pinter uh, from this film from 1981 is because it is impossibly boring. It is a chronically horribly boring film. It is so boring. It's boring. Every minute of it is boring until the very, very end when you realize that you are, you are incredibly bored and, and you, you have that feeling of regret that you feel like you missed something grand, but it doesn't matter because it was grandly boring. Wow, I was so <laughs> bored. I, this is why I was texting. I was I was slacking you in the middle of this that while I was watching. I said I can't make it. I can't. This is the most difficult movie I've ever had to watch. I know there are interesting things going on here. I'm sure there are interesting performances, but ever like in I press play and three minutes later I am glassed over. <laughs> Did you not have a similar challenge? I did not have a similar challenge. I I had no problem watching this movie. I found it very easy to watch, actually. <laughs> but it's interesting because I found this to be a very fascinating film. I enjoy what they're doing with the story. I enjoy the story itself. That being said, I have a hard time saying it's something that I really liked. I don't think it was something that I connected with, um, as interesting as I thought it was. Uh, okay, then you get to teach me uh, why it was interesting, and I'll tell you the things that I find that I find interesting. The first thing, which I imagine you are interested in, the book is a is a tome, and I have also never read it, the John Fowles book. But I think part of the of the what is um, there are some expert, really exquisite structural things going on in the film, and and the adaptation, the work of turning this, you know, romance, this Victorian age romance. Uh, into the film, uh, they they took a really interesting strategy to do so. Do you want to talk about that? Because I imagine I'm watching this thing, and I think Andy's going to love this part of it. It was very interesting. I, I really enjoyed the fact that um, that they this was a, one of those books that people said it's unfilmable because the way that John Fowles wrote it is it was a kind of almost a. a I don't know, I guess I'd call it maybe a postmodernist take on Victorian era romance novels where you, my understanding of the book, I haven't read it either, but it, it sounds like you've got this Victorian era romance going on um, between these two characters. But then you have the author 
kind of stepping in almost as a narrator, looking at this Victorian romance from the modern age and kind of almost analyzing what was going on in that period and why it's so different from today. And so it was a very strange blend of of a story with looking at the story from a different period. And then as he got to the ending of the book, he actually ended up um, creating several different endings in the book. He had kind of a happy ending and then he had a sad ending. And I, I think there was even a third ending that it sounded like it was a little silly. And he, uh, John Fowles, I guess, actually doesn't really like that he put that ending in there now. But that's, you know, doesn't really matter uh, in our purposes here. What Harold Pinter, actually, I believe it was uh, Carol Rice who kind of came upon this idea of uh, how to adapt this book. And then he and Harold Pinter really kind of um, figured out the right way to go about it. And then Harold Pinter went off and wrote it. Um, what he did in order to kind of blend the two time periods together is they actually took, they left the Victorian era story alone. And that makes up for probably three quarters of the film. And then they integrated this interesting story that is kind of a parallel story of actors playing those characters. And it's the same actors as Meryl Streep and Jeremy Irons playing them in both time periods. And you see them as the actors playing um, these Victorian characters. characters and you see them as these Victorian uh, people in the story and you go back and forth between the stories and it kind of is an interesting parallel love story going on in each time period and interesting elements of how things are treated in those two time periods and I thought that was absolutely fascinating and I thought the way that they blended it in the in the editing was really really interesting. I think that's the the most interesting thing going on with the film is the way they play with it. And and I will say honestly I am I end up being it, I think the both of the the um the time periods are dealing with affairs and and going through the sort of social discomfort of um what an affair looks like. And that's what I think is so interesting the sort of 70% of the film that takes place or 80% of the film that's in Victorian era uh we see, you know, the stigma that comes with kind of a marked woman and what it means to fall in love with her and that that kind of relationship and that ultimately ends really very positively um and and uh, i i think that was a, a sort of an interesting take on the love story and then the the same characters having the same affairs from a much more sort of traditional affair um you know they uh, jeremy irons contemporary character falls in love with meryl streep's contemporary character as the actress and she is also has a is, is married to a frenchman and and, um, uh, you know, he falls, he just, Irons gets completely tied up in knots over this woman, even over the course of the film, as she becomes more and more kind of cool um, to him. And that ultimately ends uh, with him alone. And she she drives off. And, and, um, and so, you know, it answers that question. Um, you know, what, how would these characters be if, if it was contemporary? The question that Fowles asks repeatedly through the, through the course of the book, it sort of answers that question. It implies the answer to that question through the jump through time. And, and I think it's interesting. I mean, I, I think that is an interesting take on the film. Um, if, if, if I were ultimately interested in their romance at all. Sure. Sure. I also found it interesting that, um, Jeremy Irons character in the present day, um, 
really, it's almost like he was falling in love with the character, Sarah, from the Victorian era that Anna, the modern Meryl Streep, is playing. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting to see how he kind of, it was almost like there was this, this passion for freedom that um, Sarah desired and passion to kind of be her own woman that that really kind of set this spark in him and that's what kind of drove him to fall for her and that's what drove him to fall for the actress Anna and it's almost like Anna the actress realized that this freedom that the character Sarah was pursuing was almost giving her um uh, putting her into a dangerous place of, of this affair and everything. And that's uh, what kind of brought her out of it. Um, but it was really interesting how at the end of it, when when Jeremy Irons' character goes to the window as Anna, uh, Meryl Streep's actress character, is leaving, he calls her Sarah. And I just thought that was really interesting. It did. I, I thought so too. Um, just the, the level of him getting sucked into into that drama. And and I think the parallel of him in, you know, in the Victorian era, you know, Meryl's Streep's character is, um, she invents kind of her own reality, right? I mean, she's, she crafts this whole kind of backstory and, and uh, Meryl Streep has said to herself that one of the things that she sort of remembers from playing this part is that she never really knew when she was acting as an actress was telling the truth or or telling a fabrication and and apparently Pinter and and Rice really you know loved that bit um and and I think that that speaks interestingly of Jeremy Irons character the way he gets so sucked into the drama like he just gets wrapped around her and uh, even though we, we're not sure exactly where her integrity or authenticity lies, in the same way he gets totally sucked up in, um, you know, in Meryl Streep's character in the present, um, it, you know, we're, we're, we have a better idea of where her integrity lies as she leaves. And I think that's kind of the punchline to this terrible joke, which is, you know, it, it was never really meant to be in the first place. But it, it it's sort of the story of of like my life in high school and summer job crushes found therein. It's it's like a, a love triangle um, or, or, you know, sort of a, a tale of romance that, um, uh, that, that seems ultimately very childish. Um, both the Victorian and contemporary uh, uh, romances seem really very childish to me, and that's one of the reasons I found I had a hard time relating to them. Huh. That's that's interesting. I, childish. I don't know if that's the way that I would put it. I I would definitely feel that way about the modern one. Like it just feels very um, fly by night. But that's what I found so interesting about the modern romance compared with the Victorian one is it's it's very easy for them to have an affair. It's very casual. It doesn't really matter that much. And the way that everything is portrayed in that in that in, in all of those scenes is is exactly that it's just like meh you know it didn't really matter so much even though he completely falls for her it just all felt very um very i, I mean casual i think is the wrong word it just but it felt um like it was just one of those things where they shrugged it off really easily and in the past it was just really interesting that an affair like that 
uh, or or just characters like that, like this, uh, you know, this uh, this mysterious French lieutenant's woman. Um, the way that they were treated, the way that people looked at at characters like that, because they had, um, uh, you know, had sex, and just because uh, of the way that they acted and stuff, it was it, it created these outcasts, and everything was so much more heightened about such simple little things like that. And I thought that was the interesting part about the comparison between the two eras is just. Um, whether the story, I, I mean, whether the love story, I guess you could say childish or not, just how society reacted to it. And that, I think, was with the interesting insight between the two. And, and I loved the bit where she was, uh, Anna, the actress, was they were laying in bed and she's talking about like all the statistics or whatever about. Oh, the yes, the, of, the, the Jeremy the, Irons does prostitution math scene. Right, right. <laughs> like how many how many prostitutes there were at the population of England and how many brothels there were. And it was really interesting. Like that's there were so many women. And that's like if, if you were if you were cast out of society, if you were disgraced, it's like that's all there was for you. And it was really interesting and to kind of hear them casually talking about it and then to see um Sarah in this position, theoretically in this position where um, the only options left to her would be to go to London and basically become a whore. And I just found that really interesting, the way that they played that and compared those two. But you didn't. Well, <laughs> you know, no, I and, and I do. I mean, I agree with you. This is why I feel like I'm not wired for this film. Like, I mean, it's telling a story that I just found my, I found completely impenetrable. Um, you know, I mean, I, I get it, but it was, uh, belabored, um, you know, belabored romance that I just, I just couldn't buy. And because, you know, 98% of the DNA of this film is built around these dueling romances. I, I just was exhausted by the end of it. Um, you know, I, I didn't find enough connective tissue between the, the, the drama of the romance. And I recognize there is a huge market for romance for just straight hardcore romance novels, romance films. I get it. And it's just not, it, it doesn't fit for me. But you know what's interesting? I found myself reflecting on other films that I, I really uh, love, even other films that are that are vic- sort of of the Victorian kind of uh, mold. For example, I'm a huge fan of the the uh, film based on Ian Forster's book, uh, A Room with a View. I, I thought that was a, a terrific film, and it was subdued and uh, just lovely. And I... I I really cherished it for the longest time. And, and that was really most of the DNA of that film was, was around uh, the romance, a youthful romance. And that film I felt really connected with me. This one uh, just did not. And I'm, I'm really trying, I'm genuinely trying to figure out what it is that, that didn't. Because like you say, there are some really expert things going on in the construction of this film. Well, uh, I mean, could it be that, I mean, this is just a different kind of uh, book? I mean, Room with a View, I mean, I really enjoyed that too. Um, but that has a more positive 
feel to it, right? I mean, isn't it about finding yourself and 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 connecting? And I mean, I honestly can't remember much, but I just uh, my recollection is that it was a more positive sort of yes. story. Yeah, you're and absolutely one, right. And they 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 have to overcome. They end up overcoming, you know, society's um, you know uh, the the challenges imposed on them by society to in, in to you know and and the they are also in search for freedom. That is a very much a similar theme here, kind of finding the the freedom to live the life that you that you want, the life that you dream, um, you know, no matter what your past transgressions may be, or in this case, uh, you know, your made up past transgressions. Um, and and ultimately, I think the French lieutenant's woman uh, ends the the more powerful romance of the film ends positively. They go off into the boat. They they are together when we last see them. Right? right. I mean, it yeah. ends very positively. It ends on an up note. You have this feeling of satisfaction. Oh, thank God. The two that I cared about were together. And in the contemporary story, they don't end up together. And really, you don't want them to end up together. You don't like Jeremy Irons in, in the contemporary setting. You don't—he's he's not the guy you're rooting for. Right. But in the Victorian era, you want him to—you want him to find her. You want them to get over each other. You want them to to end up together. I think you want her to to get out of her own way and get out of her own head, and find a way clear of her delusion. Well, I, and see, that's the thing is, I don't know if it's a delusion so much as the, it was really interesting watching this right after Kramer versus Kramer because her character is essentially the same sort of character, <laughs> right? She needs to get away from a situation. Um, that and and find a way to basically become or, or find herself really and just find to grow up, be, become the person, not grow up but grow into herself. Like find a way for to become herself. You know, like she's lost. And yeah, it's interesting because Sarah in this film feels very much like a character who's just born in the wrong time. Like she feels like a modern. She she like she would be a modern woman. I, you know, she's the sort who's very much um, ready to become a suffragette type of woman and fight for women's rights and all that. And and the restricted society around women puts her into this place where she. She, you know, the only option for women like the uh, like uh, Tina Ernestina that uh, that uh, Charles um, fall, uh, you know, proposes to um, in the film. That's the sort of life that women are looking for, where they can be, um, you know, a wife, and basically that's it, you know. And Sarah is not looking for that. And so she kind of created this whole story of this French lieutenant, lieutenant, so that she can um, uh, not have to do those things that society says, no, this is what you must do because you are a woman. And I found that really interesting. There is something interesting about that, that, that she's trying to, to shake the... the uh, the bounds or the the bindings of her experience, and yet oh right, the Kramer versus Kramer, yeah, right, yeah, right, um, and and yet I'm I'm left like really wondering what her like the reason I'm sticking to this delusion line is because she is really lucid uh, about where you know what she is what she's the role she is playing as she is being sort of you know um, sent away or ostracized. Um, she she says to Jeremy Irons, you know, you you can't be seen with the the marked woman, right? With the the you can't right. be seen with me in the woods, and she hides so that he can't be have his reputation tarnished. 
And yet the things that she says are largely made up. She has done this to herself. She has created a situation in which through lies and, uh, uh, you know, half-truths, she has created a a place where she has ostracized herself from the community. And now she is living through and suffering through, um, you know, the results of that. And that's... I, that is problematic for me at the character level because, um, you know, I'm not sure that I understand her motivation to do that beyond she's, you know, she's not well. <laughs> well, I the, the question that I had was, okay, so she needs to break free and she does, right? Somehow through Jeremy Irons, she ends up breaking free. She gets out of Lyme Regis and and goes to ending in the lake country where she's now basically a nanny for these kids or some or governess for these kids and and these people let her kind of do her own thing and she's really found herself, right? That's kind of the journey that she takes over the course of the film. Why did she have to destroy Jeremy Irons in the process? Like, that was the question that I had, is like, why couldn't she have just left Lyme Regis and gone to the Lake Country and become the governess and created this whole new life for herself? Was he a catalyst that she needed in order to actually get out? I couldn't figure that out. And it didn't make any sense to me um, because... There's like, why does she feel the need to use him to tell him this fabricated story to uh, to help her get out? Did you? Yes. No, there I I, I was You're able lost to suss too. out no reason for that. That was and that was the biggest problem for me. And as much as I found the film fascinating, that drove me nuts because I'm like, couldn't she have just left? <laughs> Well, right, and and that gets back to the exact same. I mean, what you're talking about is essentially the the end of the line of like logic that I fight I have been fighting with over her character, right? Because she destroys him in the process, but it's the same reason she's really destroyed her own reputation through lies and fabrication. Like she's she has done. It's just one more thing that is unexplained about her character, and it's incredibly frustrating. I mean, the only thing that makes sense to me is uh, this is a period... I mean, we know she has no money. She's... uh, At the beginning of the film, she's uh, basically kicked out of the place where she's been living because the person who has been uh, taking care of her um, dies. And so she is out on the streets, so to speak, and has to find a job. And so she ends up working for this horrid woman um, as kind of her housekeeper. And that's uh, that's the only way she's making money. So maybe it's just that she needed Jeremy Irons to basically fund her escape. Maybe and he does do that, right? He sends he does, her yeah. 50 pounds and right. she's able and, to. And then he tries to cut ties with her and can't do that. So right. you think it, you think she was just trying to get the money? That I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe that's it. That's a that's a that is another uh, line that is unresolved then. Right. Like there is at nowhere later does it come does the money come up as if it was a thing that she somehow took advantage of him. Yeah, it's not brought up. Just the fact that uh, you know he left her and he he needs her, et yeah. cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So frustrating. I'm really frustrating. Now, beyond those frustrations, uh, Richard Griffiths is in it. Plays <laughs> <Yes>. drunk. <laughs> 
<laughs> Always you'll, nice to see him pop up. <laughs> you'll 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 remember Richard Griffiths from uh, one of my very favorites, Naked Gun Two and a Half. <laughs> the smell of fear. Oh my I gosh, lo- was he in that? I love That's that so Leslie funny. Nielsen. Are you ki- was he in that? Are you kidding? He was Doctor Meinheimer. I just watched that movie. That's funny. I haven't seen that since it came out in 91, so I really can't remember. So good. He was also, obviously, Vernon Dursley in all of the Harry Potter movies. He only, he died just a couple of years ago, sadly, young, young, 65. Yeah, With Uh, Nail and I from uh, 87 is a big one of his. Yep, yep. Uh, And and so I start with him because he was the one I was most excited to see. I already knew it was a Meryl Streep, Jeremy Irons film. And when I saw him kind of as one of the drinking buddies, I got very excited. (laughs) (laughs) And Peter Vaughn is in it. I always love seeing Peter Vaughn pop up in anything. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Who is, uh, well, he's uh, Game of Thrones. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I'm very excited about that. He's fantastic in it. And of course Brazil, so you yeah. know, I've got to love him. Yeah. So okay. Uh, we well, we should talk then. I do. I mean, do you have more to say about Meryl Streep's performance? As she she is the beneficiary, the um, the patron of our series. I uh, I thought she was great. I mean, I you know she actually said you know I promised John Fowles that I would not try to explain Sarah. Um, well, she and- did a hell of a job on that one. No, I think I think yeah. that's exactly it. I think that this character Sarah is really a fascinating one, and I think it's interesting that there's that part part where you know he says something about her being remarkable, and she gets all it's almost like this look of I don't know it's like pride or something, but she's like I am a remarkable woman, and I just thought that was really interesting. Like that's an interesting thing. It seemed like an interesting thing for a Victorian woman to kind of be that way, and. Um, I I really found her a very interesting character. And I was drawn into her the entire time. I mean, I found her really fascinating. All the bits with her on the cob, that's kind of the big stone um, thing out in the sea. What do you call those things? It's like a breakwater. Yeah, it's like a breakwater sort of thing. That stuff was just stunning uh, to look at. Visually, it it was gorgeous. Some of these sequences are just gorgeous. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, I really liked Marilyn in this. It was a really interesting blend, the way that she played these two characters, uh, from Anna, the modern actress, and Sarah, the Victorian woman. And there's a there's an interesting scene toward the end where uh, uh, Jeremy Irons' character in the Victorian era hits her and knocks her down or pushes her. And she falls and hits her head on the floor. And she sits up and she, instead of like reacting in pain, it's like she's laughing. And Meryl Streep commented about how it was an interesting point where all of a sudden these two characters kind of blend together. And the the person who kind of sits up right there is Anna. And I, I had to go back and actually rewatch that scene because I'm like, really, that's really interesting because I didn't see it that way. I just saw that it was a, it was just a reaction where Sarah and Charles were kind of taken by the overreaction of their strong emotions and kind of stepped back and, and were laughing about, you know, the silliness of everything. Um, but it's interesting to look at going, oh, okay, so now we're watching the actors playing these characters and 
we're seeing Anna interpreting this. And it was actually really interesting to go back and look at it that way. You know, I, I agree with you. And I did the same sort of double take. I went back and I watched the last six minutes of the film again. And I, and the thing that I am struck with is um, that, you know, I, now I can't see it the other way, right? I, right. I can't see it as sort of continuing the, the timeline integrity of the, the Victorian era. And, uh, when you watch it again, look at uh, Jeremy Irons' beard. It's terrible. The makeup right. is terrible. It looks like it's like taped on with scotch tape, <laughs> right? I mean, it's terrible, which again is that, you know, this is where the timelines merge. Like we're no longer watching, um, you know, we're no longer watching the, um, the, the period and we're now right. contemporary. And I think it is, I think that was actually uh, really nice. And that's what I mean when I say I was so bored until the end. And now I really, I really appreciate the end and the way these things kind of come together, um, you know, that much more. Um, right. So, uh, Jeremy Irons. Uh, you know, this was his first kind of big breakout film before this. He'd been in, uh, I think, a couple smaller films or smaller roles in films, but I think it was mostly TV, a lot of TV miniseries, TV movies. And uh, this was kind of the the big thing for him. Um, and I think he was doing this and Brideshead Revisited for a TV at the same time. And then, uh, you know, just kind of this kept him moving into more and more films. And, uh, I mean, he's one of those actors. He's pretty strong uh, character on screen. I enjoy seeing him. Yeah, me too. He's He is fun to watch. And uh, even though I, you know, I... I um, you know, he, he plays the overwrought uh, lover uh, in this film as good as anybody could. If, you well, are, if you're into overwrought lovers, he's your man. And he's good at it because he does it again in, <laughs> uh, in Damage. He does yeah. it again in Lolita. Um, yes. I mean, he does, <laughs> like, this is the sort of character where... He does he it again in to... Die Hard with a Vengeance. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh, so funny. Yeah, Aragon, Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, it's really his he's cornered the market. <laughs> this is what he does. It's his way. Oh, so funny. Um I uh, yeah, no, so he's he's uh he's good. He's good yes, as he's, the overall lover. That's his thing. Yeah, he's great. He, uh, he's just a solid actor. Um uh, I think the the uh his assistant Sam Right, ah, uh, Hilton, Hilton McRae. Hilton McRae, uh, I I think he was. Um, I enjoyed watching him on screen maybe more than anybody. Um, <laughs> he's, I think he's hysterically funny. I never quite understood everything that he said uh, in the film. His accent is a little thick, and he speaks very quickly. Uh, but there were bits that just slayed me, particularly when he resigns. Um, uh-huh. His intentions are not clear um, to me through many of the sequences, like what, what is he actually, you know, what is he really up to? I'm not sure if he's helping, you know, if he's helping, uh, uh, Charles or if he's helping himself, uh, in many sequences, but, uh, but I did enjoy watching him. I think he's an interesting, um, an interesting kind of weaselly part. He was great. I agree. I had so much fun watching him in this film. I enjoyed watching all of the bit characters, actually. I thought they all were a lot of fun, even the small, small uh, characters with very small parts. Uh, I thought they did a lot of uh, interesting things. Um, Hilton McRae, interestingly, um, went from this to uh, just a few years later to playing an uncredited character, Arvel Crinid, or Crinid, in Return of the Jedi. <laughs> 
<laughs> I have no idea who Arvel Crinid is. <laughs> wow. That's uh, he was the here we go. He was the leader of the A-wing filled green group during the Battle of Endor. That is so interesting. Yeah, he led his squadron into the fleet of Star Destroyers with the objective of disabling their ion cannons, thereby allowing the Alliance fleet through the Star Dreadnought Executor. Oh, there he is. Yeah, he doesn't end up, uh, well, uh, living. (laughs) I tell you, Star Wars pilots, they probably sat in a little canopy and just had to rattle lines off over and over again. Okay, now... Now, uh, say, uh, you know, veer left, veer left. Right on target. Right. I'm not believing it. I'm not believing you. Let's try that one more time again, shall we? Now, your red who standing by? <laughs> so oh, funny. goodness. Uh, anybody else uh, really jump out at you that you uh, you want to talk about beyond the uh, bit characters? Um, well, within the bit characters, I will just say... Um, I was looking at some of their lists, and Mrs. Tranter, mm-hmm. who is the horrible woman who uh, who hires her. I thought that was Patience um, Collier. Who was that? Mrs. Pol- oh, maybe you're Pulteney. Right. Pulteney. Who was that? Yeah, that's right. Mrs. Mrs. Tranter. Then I can't remember who Mrs. Tranter is. Well, anyway, she yeah. was in the Man in the White Suit. Was she the? She was the one who talks to him at the door uh, when right. he, he knocks off all the the canisters. Right. Yeah, so there's that. That was a good one. Who else? Uh, Leo McKern is one of those faces that is just so well known. And honestly, it's like looking through his filmography, I'm like, why do I know him so well? And I really can't pinpoint it. I don't know if it's Lady Hawk, because I certainly saw that a a lot when I was younger. I don't know if it's uh, from The Omen. Um, the from... blue, the blue lagoon, blue lagoon. No, that I, was uh, on repeat uh, at your house. Guilty pleasure. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the man for all seasons. Uh, like I just don't know, but he is just one of those guys who is just so familiar. Like his face is just like just one of those faces that's just burned into my brain. You know, that's funny. You're right, yeah. man. He's been in uh, in a bunch of stuff, and I, his his face is not burned so much into my brain. But uh, uh, but now I'm seeing it. Look at all this stuff he's been. The Adventure of Sherlock Holmes, smarter brother. Candle shoe. That's probably one of the ones that I was because of that. Candle was one of those shoe. Disney I don't even I don't even know what that is. That was one of those Disney ones from the late seventies. Wow. Yeah, with uh, David Niven, Helen Hayes, Jodie okay. Foster. He played bondage. Bondage. He played bondage. <laughs> bondage. <laughs> Very well, that one wasn't uh, Disney. Uh, uh, that was a little different. He was also in it, but not Disney. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah. My, All right. My. So we got to talk a little bit about how the film uh, came together, right? Um, uh, we talked about the adaptation part a bit, but the uh, you want to imagine talk about our... Our friends uh, Harold Pinter and Carol Rice. They are, yeah. Harold Pinter is uh, one of those guys who's just kind of, um, uh, you know, he's very well known. Let's just say uh, he's, he's very. He's sort of uh, England's older David Mamet. <laughs> right. That's probably a good way of looking at him. He's just uh, he's one of those writers who's just all over the place, and he's acted, he's uh, directed, a playwright, screenwright. Uh, just kind of all over the place, and uh, yeah, I mean, just looking through his his career of stuff, it's like this guy has done a lot of stuff, and he's created um, 
his own style that very much kind of created a whole Pinteresque adjective describing the sorts of things that he would write. Um, that being said, I haven't seen much of his stuff. I don't know about you, but uh, I haven't seen a whole lot of his stuff. Uh, I I have not. And, um, y- you know, he did a lot of TV early on, most of the 60s, but his... Um, you know, I, I knew him more as a as a playwright than as a, a screenwriter. And, um, you know, The Homecoming, and um, I think we did that in college, um, A Night Out. Like, these were uh, these were things that we, we read in, in school. The Dumbwaiter in the Room, and those were, the, a lot of his, these were his own adaptations uh, of his own plays that, that he made into either TV movies or, or screenplays. Um, but I, I don't know of his, many of his, uh, of his films, certainly. No, um, no. And, and so, and, and I think because he's, he's sort of of an era, I mean, he, he passed away in 2008, um, but was still, you know, working, uh, or, or things of his were still being made certainly into the, into the early 2000s. And, um, I, I really think, you know, I compare him to David Mamet and, and even, I guess, to, to sort of Aaron Sorkin as another contemporary, but he's, he's sort of, I, I, what I get from that is that Pinter had his own vibe. Like, if you had seen everything of Pinter, you would recognize that voice instantaneously. Uh, I, don't, I don't have that muscle memory of, of Pinter's in my head, but I certainly do of Sorkin, and I can really resonate. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's it. I mean, I think he was that sort of writer for that era. And it seems more specifically England. I mean, I, I definitely recognize his name, but I mean, you look at the films that he's he's more known for, um, you know, The Homecoming, The Birthday Party. Um, uh, those are films that I think um, kind of were in that era of uh, the, uh, the, I don't want to say the new wave. What was it called that uh, Carol Rice was a part of? The, the kind of the... Um, the new film um, movement in England. What was it called? Why am I blanking on it right now? I don't know. I don't know. Probably maybe some sort of a disorder or traumatic brain Prob- injury. Probably something like that. Check your exactly. feel around your head, maybe around the lobe. Is there a rebar coming out of either side of you? <laughs> <laughs> That's a sure sign that uh, you are yes. suffering yes, from yes, traumatic yes. brain injury. <laughs> Oh, well. This episode something. is brought to you by Rebar. <laughs> <laughs> you were saying? Good times, good times. <laughs> yes, I, I, that's about all I have for Harold Pinter. <laughs> that's, that's where I'm ending that one. Oh, uh, All right, that's fine. But, but Carol Rice was yeah. part of the free cinema documentary film movement. That's the thing I was trying to remember. Um, it was uh, a, a group that was very much... You know, really trying to show very naturalistic depictions of things. Um, one of his early films, we are the Lambeth Boys, uh, depicted you know kind of very realistically this South London Boys Club, really showing kind of the life of these working class teenagers. And he did a lot of uh, documentaries in this style. And then when he started moving into uh, feature narrative films, his first film, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, um, was very much of this kind of realistic uh, documentary style um, storytelling. And that's something that he kind of kept through his films that he ended up making. And this film, 
I don't think it's necessarily, I wouldn't call it just like, you know, naturalistic, but I do feel that he captured a very realistic style within it. And I felt that he, uh, between the script by Pinter and the direction by Rice, did very much create a story that felt very, um, very honest. I mean, it may not have necessarily completely connected with either of us, but I do feel that it was um, a very um, honest storytelling with strong characters. I, I agree. And I think the the sequence that really stands out for me is, um, you know, just in terms of direction, right? If you just look at straight up at, at the way he orchestrates a, a particular sequence, it's, it's uh, uh, Sarah's, uh, I guess, soliloquy. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, in the woods, about 40, I don't know, 45 minutes in the film, 42 minutes in the film. And there's there's like a five minute, uh, you know, kind of wandering soliloquy where she's sort of telling this this story about the French lieutenant and she's kind of fabricating her history. But she's doing it in this uh, amazingly, beautifully flirtatious way. Uh, and she's sort of dancing through the trees uh, as she's doing it. And the camera is moving in in a wonderful uh, sort of oblong oval around the two of them. And and uh, we get these great reactions from Jeremy Irons. And, and uh, as, as she just sort of leads us uh, through her... Memory and and I find I, I found that sequence in particular pretty beautiful. Even if I don't connect with the whole story, I love the way um, it's executed. And as you say, it's a really natural uh, portrayal um, and and a very patient kind of actor's sequence that he really you know shows a lot of respect to to what he's trying to to capture. It was a very, uh, I mean, geez, that area, the Undercliff by mm-hmm. Lyme Regis, is just stunning to look at. What an incredible location to film in. And with her storytelling there, and just the way that Meryl would move through the scene and move around the trees and stuff, and sometimes moving quicker or slower, it was really fascinating. And she was very captivating, particularly in that story, the way that she wove it. Mm-hmm. And and so. Jeremy Irons <laughs> ends up just sort of withering in that sequence by the end he's like holding himself like sh- sort of shake quivering in the woods uh, right <laughs> it was so good Meryl you're so good <laughs> oh, yeah. so funny so right. funny there's 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 a reason that uh, I will say going back to Meryl there's a reason that she was nominated for best actress uh, for this film she was very good, and and she balanced these two different characters very well, and and the mystery of Sarah she balanced very well. So this was her first Oscar nomination as Best Actress after the last two that we've talked about in Best Supporting Actress. Uh, she didn't win; she lost to Catherine Hepburn in On Golden Pond, um, and you know I think that's probably a uh, a fair loss right there. I think so too. The loons, the loons, the loons you old coot. <laughs> All right. Any other, any, anybody else you want to talk about? Or are we pretty much... Uh... Uh, just a few things. David yeah. Warner is in this, though I didn't see him. I don't know where he was in this. I completely missed him. But uh, David Warner is uh, somebody that we know and love, and uh, he's in there somewhere. Where, where was he? What was he doing? I don't know, but he's listed as Murphy. I didn't see, I didn't see his <laughs> Tron. I didn't see his Tron outfit. <laughs> 
Uh, so he pops up in there. Penelope Wilton is in it as, um, who was she again? She was uh, Sonia. And I can't remember who Sonia was in it. But Penelope Wilton, we know and love as Sean's mom in Shaun of the Dead. Yes. Oh, we do love her in that. Yes, we do love her in that. And the last actor that I wanted to talk about is one that is, I find completely strange because it's an actor by the name of Michael Dickens, born in Lambeth, uh, in London. And he plays an uncredited fisherman. And I only bring him up because when you look at his credits, <laughs> his credits, every one of them is uncredited. <laughs> and I don't quite, what like, I really want to know how he ends up in all of these films and why he's uncredited all of them. Quadrophenia, he's a scooter rider. Then the French lieutenant's woman as the fisherman. Then ever decreasing circles <laughs> as a college student. Then wish you were here as bus driver. First night. As village fighter, gladiator as Germanic soldier, World War Z as zombie, <laughs> Doctor Who as villager, Da Vinci's demons as a ghost traveler, and you know it just and then, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. It's like, they are all uncredited. It's like he's born to just be an extra, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's it. He probably just pops into these films as a as kind of background uh, fill and is just somewhere in the back. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> but clearly he loves it enough to make an IMDb page for himself. And uh, yeah, there he is, Michael Dickens. That's a So riot. kudos to you, Michael. <laughs> That's right. I'm, I'm looking for it. There he is in Doctor Who. There he is. I think he's got a goatee. It well, is. all right. I, I think we should. Uh, ha- so, uh, yeah, how did it do? Uh, we know that uh, uh, Meryl did not win uh, the her particular Oscar, but otherwise how the film perform. And it was nominated for five Oscars. It lost all of them. Uh, Meryl Streep lost. Um, Harold Pinter lost for Best Adapted Screenplay. Um, Ashton Gorton and Anne Molo lost for Best Art Direction Set Decoration. Tom Rand lost for Best Costume Design. And John Bloom lost for Best Film Editing. It was one of those movies that got the Oscar nominations and didn't walk home with anything. But what, who, who won uh, Who won out from under John Bloom. For editing? Yeah, for editing. Do you happen to have that? Yeah, it is uh, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, well, you know, that's probably good. Yeah. But so I think that's... if you, I mean, in terms of the construction of the film, I think if you really look at, at just the really, really smart editing choices uh, to bring us back and forth in time um, in this film, it's it's really pretty elegant uh, and and smart. Uh-huh. Yeah, and and Harold Pinter, um, he lost on Golden Pond, but um, that's another one where it's like, I, you know, I could have seen this taking that just because of the the adaptation of finding the right way to actually tell this story. Yeah, mammoth. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, in terms of uh, money, in terms of money, it made money. It d- did pretty well uh, for itself. This film cost. Uh, from what I found, it cost about eight million to make, which is about twenty and a half million uh, in today's dollars. So you know, a decent budget, I guess, for a period drama. It ended up making domestically about almost twenty-seven million uh, in today's dollars. That's about almost sixty-nine million dollars. Um, I didn't find any uh, thing internationally, but that's what I found. So it did end up making about three hundred eighty-one thousand dollars per finished minute. 
Pretty good. Adjusted. Adjusted, yeah. Yeah, pretty good. I think it's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and uh, sign up for an account and check it out. See if your uh, top 200 films match anywhere close to our top 200 films, just like our friend Ben Lott. This is a big one because we're going to have to see if it's going to crack uh, the top 43. That's right. Let's see if it, it breaks in <laughs> above social network. <laughs> oh, French lieutenants woman. Um, all right. French lieutenants woman or oh, brother, where art thou? Oh, brother, where art thou? Oh, brother takes that one. Yes, indeed. It is not going to crack the top 43. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, the French lieutenants woman or the sandlot? The sandlot. I will say the sandlot. The French Lieutenant's Woman or Major League? Major League. I will say Major League as well. The French Lieutenant's Woman or The Blob? The Blob. I will say The French Lieutenant's Woman, actually. I was so much less bored by The Blob. (laughs) Okay, that's true. But I think there's a lot more interesting stuff going on in The French Lieutenant's Woman. The Blob is very easy to watch. So much more easy to watch than this. But there's this one just, I, I don't know. I found more meat to this one. And I would, if I were to pick, this is the one I'd probably go back and rewatch. So so are you saying that we would have to fight it out? I am saying that. All right, then I'll give it to you. Okay. <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> the French Lieutenant's Woman or Murder by Death? Murder by Death. I will death. Def- definitely do French Lieutenant's Woman. <laughs> On this one, sir, thing. I'm taking you to the mat. All right. Ready? Let's do it. Yes. One, one two, two, three. three rock. Paper. <sighs> First time. The, the French Lieutenant's Woman or Bull Durham? Bull Durham. Bull Durham, look at you, Pete. Yes, yeah, indeed. No, I tell Durham. you, I'd pick I, just you, any You'd film on our list. I really, I, I was so, I'm not watching this film again. All right. The French Lieutenant's Woman or Say Anything? Say Anything. Definitely Say Anything, yeah. The French Lieutenant's Woman or Gone with the Wind? Gone, I, gone with the absolutely Wind. Absolutely Gone with the Wind. All right, Pete. That leaves us at position 182 out of 200. All right, well... That's a little too high for my taste, but only a little. It's not one of the worst films on our list. It's not one of the, it's not one of the worst films on our list. And we still have oh, to finish our Prince series. <laughs> Lucky me! All right, and uh, what do you think of Letterbox? What's your rating for this on Letterbox? I I th- I think I'm a I'm a firm two star. I think movies that actually bore me. Every three minutes, I are a, are two star below. That's just where they are. All right. Well, I'm three star. I'm three star with this one. All right. This is good. one where I appreciate it, but it's just not one that I uh, I dig. <laughs> and it's 1966. That's right. Hey, the book was published in '69. There you go. To... That's perfect. All right. And so, where do people find us over on Letterboxd? At letterboxd.com slash the next reel. I should go there. And you, uh, you know, I have made the pledge many times that I'm going to take my personal letterbox and actually beef it up. I haven't done that yet, but I do. I love it so. It is great. It is great. Right. Yeah, I, I, I really have quite a bit of fun with it. So. Uh, I am glad we watched this. If I recall, neither of us had seen this film. 
No, it was nice to check it off our list. Yeah, I definitely checked it off, crossed it off, and then cut <laughs> it, out, it out. Actually, <laughs> with scissors, cut it out of the list. Burned it. And I taped it to the back of my uh, fireplace, where I then burned all my trash for the week. That's fantastic. Yep. Uh, but where do we go from here? We are going to be finishing up our Meryl Streep series, uh, talking about the first four films that she was uh, for which she was nominated for an Oscar. And this is going to be the one that she wins her Best Actress Oscar. For the first time, it is Sophie's Choice. Mm-hmm. Ah, yes. Now, we, we have both seen this film. Yes, I have seen it for sure. Really not uplifting. A, not a film that you forget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've already asked around to see if anybody wants to sit in and watch this one with me, and nobody does. Not a single nobody. person that I know. Oh. Yeah. So. Sorry. Maybe we could watch it at the same time. <laughs> we could tweet each other while we're watching it. <laughs> right. That's what we're going to do. Live tweet Sophie's Choice. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> that would be horrible. Worst live tweet. <laughs> oh, God. Who's it going to be? Spoiler alert. (laughs) Hashtag Zoe's Choice sucks. (laughs) Okay. Well, I got to go to bed. All right, man. I'm going to go hike in the undercliff. Uh, shall we start high or low, Andy? Um, I think we should start high <laughs> okay. and on a low note. So uh, Kelly, Kelly Librarian, uh, gives us five stars. She says her tragedy was like oxygen to her. Ooh. This is my favorite movie of all time. I think you either get it or you don't. There is something intangible about the film that just envelops me in its moody, uncanny atmosphere. Of course, there are a few subtly humorous moments when Meryl and Jeremy are the modern actors. The movie is a film within a film. It goes back and forth between the modern actors preparing for the roles and the period drama itself. Meryl Streep gives a haunting performance as tragedy. So beautiful. When I first saw the movie, I couldn't stop thinking about her standing on the rocks, staring out to sea. That was haunting. That was really incredible. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. I, uh, I Mine comes from a customer, which I think you know. Uh, we've read a customer's reviews before. We love them. <laughs> yes. The title is, Oh My God, O-M-I-G-O-D, one word. Oh My God, what an awful movie. When I was in college, I loved the book, French Lieutenant's Woman. It was one of my favorite books of all time. Sarah, the symbol of all that was feminine, mysterious, alluring, and perhaps dangerous. Was she really a whore, a goddess, or a simple woman caught in a struggle for survival in the harsh Victorian age? I could go on and on about how fabulous the book was, but this isn't a review for the book. 
When the movie came out, I rushed out to see it on the first weekend. Oh, geez, to say that I was let down just doesn't quite get it right. The two big downers were, one, Meryl Streep. Two, the changed plot device of a play within a play of modern actors acting out the movie. Meryl Streep was just horribly miscast in the role of Sarah Woodruff. She had absolutely no qualities of mystery, danger, or sex appeal to take on this role. At the time, Charlotte Rampling had been rumored to have been one of the potential actresses considered to play the role of Sarah, and she would have been great in the role. A decade later, Michelle Pfeiffer. But Meryl Streep, oh my groan. And the play within a play plot device, what an idiotic thing to do to, a com- to completely change a masterwork like John Fowle's novel. How completely artificial and unnecessary. After the movie came out, I couldn't stand to watch Meryl Streep in any other movies. One of my favorite books, and it's one shot at being made into a movie ruined. When I think about movies like The Stepford Wives or La Femme Nikita or King Kong getting remade, I think, wow, ho- wake up, Hollywood. It's time for a remake of this classic novel, and next time... Please get it right. Hmm. There's some passion. Wow. Passion. I bet I bet you'll be first in line for that remake. <laughs> yeah, you can you can imagine. You and you and Ben Lott standing I've never side been by moved. <laughs> I've never been moved to picket a film on creative differences, but I may on this one. <laughs> oh, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I have tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.